Uh, well, guys, thank you for joining us. Thank you for making the time um, to still gather. Um, we're going to jump into the preaching of the Word. Uh, today, I'm not going to preach from Ephesians. I'm going to do a special sermon on um, kind of related to the coronavirus because I, I want to, um, well, I'll get into it in my sermon. I won't explain now. Um, but I've been reading this book this week, um, which I've had on my shelf for about 10 years, but finally pulled it out. Um, it's called How Long, O Lord by Don Carson. And it's a, um, it's a book, a really just brilliant book, intellectual, but also pastoral on how do we deal with suffering and grief and pain and trial. And so it, it's really been feeding my soul um, and it's kind of informed a lot of what I'm saying today. So thank you, Donnie Carson. Okay, um, I'm going to read to you, oh, well, the, if you want a title for today's message, it's Preparing Your Heart for a Pandemic. Preparing your heart for the pandemic. Um, and I'm going to not jump into one particular text today. Um, I'm actually going to look into a whole bunch of different ones and give you a five-point sermon. So it's going to be a little bit longer. I'm going to send out the text later on if it doesn't work um, so everyone can read along. But I think um, the, the hope is, is that through doing a sermon like this, it can prepare our heart for whatever happens. Um, that we wouldn't be taken by surprise or caught unawares. So let me read to you again, Psalm 121, and then we're going to jump into the sermon. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Let's pray. Our God and Father, May you bless the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we jump in, Jordan, I wonder if when I'm not preaching, yeah, just take the screen off and then when I'm not um, quoting, that'll be good. Well, as a young pastor, um, CJ Mahaney was the pastor of a very large growing church. He was all the buzz, the rage, the fame. He was speaking at his own church to thousands of people, but getting invited to speak at these festivals with 20,000, 30,000 people. And um, everything was going well. Everything was up and up and up for him. But a wise seasoned pastor pulled him aside one week and said this to him, CJ, prepare your church for suffering. It's kind of like the, the, you know, letting the air out of the balloon, sort of everything's going well, everything's looking forward, all this growth, all this excitement, momentum. But the seasoned pastor who's been in it for 40 plus years knows the reality of life, that things don't just go up and up and up at all times, that we cannot be sure um, of our circumstances in our future. So we wisely took CJ by the shoulders when he was a young pastor and said, prepare your church for suffering. When I was at Pastors College, um, CJ was preaching to us for one week on pastoral ministry. And it really did change my life and change my whole perspective on pastoral ministry from more of a like entrepreneurial business, organizational, catalytic leader type pastoral ministry to shepherding the flock of God, precious souls, little sheep that need the word and need care. And one of the things he drove into us, we uh, like lecture after lecture after lecture was this same line. Boys, he would say, prepare your church for suffering. In fact, he, he sort of defined pastoral ministry like this, somewhat 
narrowly, but he said, pastoral ministry is preparing them for suffering, being with them during suffering, and caring for their soul after suffering. Now, at the time, I, you know, listened to this and thought, all right, CJ said it, you know, I ought to do it. Um, I put it on my to-do list of something that we should look at at some point. But being one who hasn't personally walked through the valley of the shadow of death, I felt, you know, ill-equipped and um, ill-prepared to be sharing on it. And I also didn't want to begin the church with like, hey, welcome to our new church. Here's Job. Um, But I think that the circumstances present themselves now as a a prime opportunity for us to actually engage in and think about this topic of suffering. Now, a caveat to those who are presently walking through things which are deep and painful suffering for you. um, I wanted to just take a moment and just say this sermon is not to comfort us in our suffering right now. This sermon is really prepared for us who are outside of suffering in the moment to prepare us for suffering if and when it comes. One of the authors on the counseling page, CCEF, wrote a great article about the anxiety of our pandemic time. And he said this, I want to think about how we can handle the particular strain of anxiety that comes when we are waiting for a threat that is gliding toward us its fin visible above the surface. And I think that image captures our moment very well as we look ahead to the next three to six months of a, of a worldwide pandemic. The reality is, is that we are all in the water and all of us in our life somewhere can see the fin gliding. Now, for some of us, we're in the water and we're actually just snorkeling and we're kind of like, hey, the fin is like, it's in China. You know, there's a shark. I get it, but it's not, it's not really affecting me. I'm not altogether too worried. I'm not so anxious. You can see, but you're like, maybe it's a dolphin. For other of us, for others of us, we can kind of see we're, we're in the water, we're swimming and we were okay. But suddenly we've started to realize, oh, wait a second, the fin, it's actually making a direct line and now it's over the horizon. I can see it. What am I going to do when the fin comes? And for others of us, perhaps gripped by the reality of um, suffering of people around us, the impending problem that it may be if one of our family members gets it or you yourself get it. For some of us, the fin, so to speak, is gliding right around us circling us and we can feel the the cords of death and the the fear and the anxiety gripping us we're in fight or flight kind of syndrome at the moment so whatever scenario you find your heart in right now whether it's a distant problem a coming problem or a present fear with the pandemic or any other suffering the reality is that we all need to prepare our hearts to suffer before it comes We need to look at the fin, whether it be the fin of a pandemic or the fin of any other various form of suffering in our life. We need to look at it. We can't close our eyes. We can't pretend as if nothing's ever going to go wrong. We need to look at the fin and analyze and engage the fin and the threat that it poses and prepare our hearts for its reality. Because whether we think something's going to happen in this pandemic or not, the reality is most likely some of us may get sick, 
Some of us may lose our part of our income or even our entire job. Some of us may default on car loans or home loans. Some of us may even see loved ones die. Some may be experiencing long-term isolation and the emotional and mental effects of that. And some of us, we have to deal with this, may accidentally cause suffering in the lives of others. You see, we can't really escape the fin at this time. And so rather than closing our eyes, we ought to engage with it and prepare ourselves for it. And so this sermon is an attempt to do that. This sermon is an attempt to pass our church to give us preventative medicine. You know, the, the, you know, when you have asthma, you're meant to take preventative puffers so that when you get a cold, your body's already ready for it and you don't have the asthma, asthma attack. I never take my preventative medicine. I only start taking it once I get a cold, just like Henry, um, which is why he has asthma right now. But for us as a church, we can't afford that because our soul is on the line. Our whole relation and being with God is on the line. And so I don't want us to be caught off guard. Don Carson says it like this. Much mental suffering is tied to our false expectations. Much mental suffering is tied to our false expectations. If we have false expectations that everything will be rosy and everything will just be okay, when it actually hits and the shark is on our leg, so to speak, we will be totally under the water with no idea of what to do. And our years of prosperity in the West, for most of us, have been a lousy teacher. Most of us have lived with relative, you know, comfort and ease in terms of food and drink and housing and shelter and stability. Not all of us, I'm not saying that. But most of us have lived gliding, you know, enjoying many, many days, many months of our, many years of our life even. But the last six months we've seen drought, we've seen catastrophic fire, uh, and now we're seeing disease ravage our country. And perhaps the Lord is teaching us something. Perhaps the Lord is preparing us for something. And we're in the privileged position right now for most of us in our church that the fin isn't yet circling us. And we have a chance to prepare ourselves for suffering. So here's the main point of today's sermon. As we approach the seas of suffering, we have firm biblical foundations to stand on to keep our heads above water. As we approach the seas of suffering, we have firm biblical foundations to stand on to keep our heads above the water when the suffering hits us. And so I'm going to jump in and give us five points today, five firm biblical foundations that can help prepare us for when the fin comes. Now, these aren't going to comfort you in the middle of it. These aren't going to be, you know, existential things that will make you just feel like, yes, God has got me, etc. But what they are to do is to reorient our brain and our thinking so that we can actually comprehend and process suffering when it hits us. So I won't give you all five points now. I'll give you to them one by one as we come. But five foundations to keep our head above water when suffering comes. Point number one, we need to understand the origin of suffering. The origin of suffering. 
When suffering hits, the most common and gut-wrenching question that is often asked is, why? Why would God allow this? Why has this happened? Why me? Why now? Where are you, Lord? What did we do to deserve this? Why am I suffering and not them? (laughs) Or why are they suffering and not me? And if we leave those questions circling and we don't engage them, over time we begin to think of God as distant, cold, or worse, he becomes cruel and unfair. And we can start to think that we or others don't deserve this kind of treatment from the Lord, that we don't deserve a tragedy or a trial. That kind of thinking can start to enter our head and our hearts and change the way we process it. And when tackling suffering, and when we see other people suffering, we can't just quickly quote Romans 8.28 and think everything will be just fine. We can't just say, well, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And we can't just say that and think our job is done. As true and glorious as this verse is, it takes solid biblical foundation for us to believe it and receive it in the good word that it is. It takes a lot of heart preparation for us to truly trust that God is working all things together for good. You see, the Bible doesn't treat our suffering glibly or simply. God doesn't just slap on a verse and say, you'll be right. It doesn't work like that. The longest treatment of suffering in the Bible is the book of Job, 42 chapters. It's long for a reason. It's long because suffering is cyclical and lots of questions come out and doubts and things, you know, ruminate in our heads and it it can't just be solved with one sentence. There is no one answer. And even when you get to the end of the book of Job, God never tells him why. So the Bible treats our suffering seriously, and we can't just give a quick answer. But we need to understand this first foundation of suffering. Why does suffering occur? What's the origin of suffering? Well, this is the first hard pill we have to swallow, but we have to implant this in our heads. The origin of our suffering is sin. All suffering, grief, pain, loss and death is a result of sin. The sin of our father Adam and our own personal subsequent sins that we have committed against a holy and righteous God. Suffering and the the consequence of suffering which is death is not ultimately unfairness from God. It's not cosmic unfairness. Instead, it's the consequence of our wrongdoing. Sins committed against a holy and righteous God incur wrath, punishment, and ultimately death. You see, God said in the garden in Genesis 2.17, when you eat of it, you shall die. And Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. You see, suffering and its consequence, death, is no accident. Death is actually God's doing. It does not happen just by accident or by process of natural events or circumstances. Everyone that has died 
was put to death ultimately by God. God appoints our time and sets our seasons. And so each one of us need to get that in our head, this this foundational truth that we have brought suffering and death upon ourselves. It's not anyone else's fault. In some way, it's all linked back to us. We cannot be like a guilty thief caught red-handed who rails at the judge for giving him his just sentence. No, no, no. The fruit's in our hands. We bite it. We took it. We deserve death. And so now we live in this cursed and fallen world, each one of us awaiting a time when we shall die. No one has been treated unfairly by God. From the cruelest villain to the sweetest granny. You see, God does not owe any one of us four score years. He doesn't owe any one of us a comfortable and easy life. Now, this doesn't mean we shouldn't be outraged at death and suffering in sin. It doesn't mean we don't cry and wail and weep and hate it. In fact, we ought to. That's what Jesus did in, in Lazarus's tomb. But in all of this, hear this, we shouldn't rage at God. For he is not the problem. We are. Now, obviously, that's a hard pill to swallow, and you don't want to, that's not your first line when someone's suffering. But we all have to take that pill and realize that anything bad that comes our way comes ultimately because of the sin in our life and in the life of this world through Adam and Eve. Now, this is not meant to be that every time you sin, there's a suffering that comes to you. That's, that's not how the Bible works. And that's, in, in fact, the whole point of the book of Job. Um, in fact, sometimes in the Bible, when people sin, um, suffering does come immediately, like Ananias and Sapphira, they die. Uh, but other times, people are in abject suffering, like the man born blind in Matthew. But the whole reason wasn't because he, he sinned or his parents sinned. It was that he might give glory to God. So we don't want to, like, draw this, like, simplistic line between you sin, therefore you suffer and die. The Bible doesn't treat it like that. But fundamentally, we need this perspective. We need to reorient ourselves rather than going, why God did you do this? We need to take responsibility and be like, I'm a part of the problem. I actually have caused my own death by sinning. And so we only get what we rightly deserve. But we also need to be aware, and I don't have time to go into all this, but for the believer, no suffering is punishment from God and no death is punishment from God because Jesus took it all for us. So we can't have that ruminating in our heads. But there is, it's just like this hard pill to swallow to begin. The origin of suffering, the cause of suffering is sin. And we've all committed it. And therefore, we all bear the consequence. So that's point number one, the origin of our suffering. So as we approach the seas of suffering, we have firm biblical foundations to stand on to keep our heads above the water. Number one, the origin of suffering is our sin. Well, number two, we need to accept the reality of suffering. We need to accept the reality of suffering. 
You see, we can't live in this kind of, you know, uh, rosy colored glasses life. I mean, I try and always live like that. I always try and live like everything's going to be fine. Everything will turn out great in the end. And obviously we know because Jesus coming back, everything will. But in the present, in the real world, not everything turns out fine. And so we can't live, you know, closing our eyes and just hoping the coronavirus will just miss the whole, you know, it just won't affect anyone or any suffering or tragedy. What we need to do is look suffering and death right in the face and accept the reality that it will come towards us. We need to enter into the grief and sorrow and we can't be deniers of reality. We live in a culture that consumes death for entertainment, but when it happens, has no idea what to do. We talk of neat platitudes at funerals, like they've gone to a better place. In fact, we don't have funerals anymore. We have celebrations and parties. We make light of death. We hide the bodies away so that we can't see the grim realities. You see, our culture is not going to help us to process the realities of suffering and death. Because it comes from a materialistic worldview that, you know, we're just a bag of bones and a bag of flesh. I wonder how you process suffering and death. How does it fit into your mind? How does it fit into the, the Bible's worldview? Well, one of the things that um, we need to understand and do is accept this reality, but not just at a mental intellectual level. Like, obviously, I know that we all know we're going to die, right? What's the only certainties in life? Death and taxes, okay? <laughs> um, we all know that. But we need to know it. We need to know it deep down in our soul, between us and ourselves, and between us and God, and between us and our families. We need to take on the reality at the soul level that we will all personally suffer and we will all personally die. Everyone we know will suffer, everyone we know will die. Our colleagues, our friends, our family, our own children, our spouses, everyone without exception. We can't miss this reality or bury our head in the sand. And the scriptures encourage us to accept the reality of death. Let's read Psalm 90. This is Moses um, in, a, in, a, in a cry of lament to the Lord, reviewing how his life is going and the life of the Israelite people. And he says, for all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? It's all a depressing verse. <laughs> All of our life is but a span of toil and trouble. It's soon gone and it flies away. But Moses is looking at death in the face and the reality of it for his people and for himself. And so as we accept the reality of death, though, it opens up an opportunity for us. Let's read verse 12 of that psalm. So Moses says, teach us to number our days 
that we may get a heart of wisdom. Moses here is teaching us to look at death in the face so that our soul can number our own days, to remind ourselves and to know that we each have a literal limit and everyone we know does as well. For some of us, we will live the four score life and maybe for some of us, it will be full of joy and pleasure and there'll be little suffering. For others, we may die young or see spouses or children die young or family members. We must number our days so that we get a heart of wisdom. Accepting the reality of death gives us wisdom to know how to live out our days, however many we have. You see, it helps us to live right under the sentence of death. It helps us to be inspired to make the best use of the time for the days of evil. It inspires us to put off sin and temptation because we know one day we will have to face our God and give an account for everything we do, Romans 15. It encourages us to not be too proud or self-important because one day in a hundred years, literally no one will remember you, not even your distant relatives. It's sad, but it's the reality. It's a bitter pill to swallow because we get caught up in our own world, in our own lives. But biblically, it helps us to deal with suffering and death because we know it's coming. We know that if we get an unexpected prognosis from the doctor that we have three months to live, as much as it's shocking and grieving and terribly saddening and all the loss and all the pain and all the tears, at least if we've come to grips with the reality that at some point, at any point, we could die, some of the blow will be removed. Some of the shock will be removed. Some of the mental anguish will be removed because we've prepared ourselves. We've numbered our days and we've gained a heart of wisdom. Internally digesting this truth can brace us for the worst. And so as a church, you know, we're young, we're six months in, things, you know, until Corona, we're growing and people are joining and new people are coming and things are exciting. But one of the things we need to add to our discipleship and our life groups and the way we do life is preparing each other for our deaths. You see, Christopher Ash says it like this in his commentary on Job. All Christians ought to be engaged in preparing one another for their deaths and for suffering. So that when suffering comes, we may be so shaped by God's word that we may be able to put our hands into the hand of God, even in the darkness. We need to accept the reality of the consequence of our sin which is suffering and death. We can't avoid it. It's coming, brothers and sisters. Whether it's through this virus or something else, whether it's through cancer or it's through natural consequences, it will happen to us all and we need to prepare our souls for it. Because in the suffering, or what is it? <laughs> as we approach the suffering, as we approach the seas of suffering, there we go. We have firm biblical foundations to stand on to keep our head above water. That was point number two, accept the reality of suffering and death. Point number three, we have a, oh, there we go. We have a sovereign God who cares for us amidst our 
suffering. The great and beautiful hope of the Christian faith is that we are not alone in our suffering, whether it be physical pain, emotional wounds, financial loss, mental anguish, or even death itself. God has not set up the world to run on its own and he's off doing something else. No, he is intimately involved and he is sovereignly control, in control of everything. Amen. Abraham Kuyper, um, a Dutch reformed theologian and later prime minister of uh, the Netherlands, and I'm Dutch, and my last name is Kuypers, so I feel like we're the same person. Um, he said this, and this is off-quoted but brilliant. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Hallelujah. <laughs> Thank you, Noah. Let's make that practical. Every cell of the coronavirus is under his sovereign control and care. Nothing is outside of his rule and governance. God is sovereign over everything. Yet this creates a problem. If God is sovereign and good, why does he allow evil and suffering in the first place? How can there be evil and suffering if God is sovereign and good? And for many people, this is where they hit the eject button. When suffering comes in their life, they're out because God can't be both sovereign and good at the same time and evil exists. And so they either say God isn't sovereign, but he's still good. He wish he could help. Or God is sovereign, but he's not good because obviously look at all the evil in the world. But the Bible actually holds up both truths. That God is sovereign and he is good and that there is evil in the world but that doesn't tarnish God's goodness. I don't have the time this morning to give a reasoned defense for how we can uphold God's sovereignty and his goodness. And there's much better books on that. And I can direct you to that. But what I want to do is commend to you and show you why God's sovereignty is good for us. You see, if you get rid of God's sovereignty, you're in a big problem. Obviously, if you get rid of God's goodness, you're in a big problem too. But we must uphold and rejoice in the sovereignty of God. It's in our name. Yeah, sovereign grace. And it's a great comfort to us, even though at times it can be very confusing. So why is God's sovereignty good for us? Well, number one, because God is sovereign, nothing is out of his control and nothing surprises him. And we already said it. Um, the virus he wasn't like, I like how Noah always says this, God isn't pacing the throne room of heaven in a hazmat suit, having a Zoom call with the angels to figure out what are we going to do about the coronavirus? No, no, no. God is in control of every little detail. He's not fretting. And he's not, you know, worried. He's not thinking, oh, how am I going to fix this? Somehow, in his sovereign goodness and plan, he's in control of every square inch of human existence. And somehow, like Romans 8.28 says, he worked all those scenarios together for the good of his elect. 
for you, for me, somehow God will turn this situation for the good of his elect. Isn't that a comforting truth? A truth you can only truly have if your God is sovereign. Secondly, because God is sovereign, he works on a different time scale. A repeated lesson from scripture is that our timing and God's timing is very different. We look and think, why, why now? Why, what's going on? Like, this is going to ruin it. Like, ah, I don't get it. But we don't see the plan from the beginning to the end. We don't see all the purpose that God is making happen. If you think of the story of Ruth, she, she didn't know that one day she would be David's great, great grandma. And in the time, she just thought, I am suffering. And what are you doing, God? Call me Mara, for my life is bitter. Think of Job when everything came against him. He couldn't see the whole story. He didn't know what was going to happen. And for us, we don't live in God's timing. And so we can't come to quick judgments about what God is doing. But we can trust that he is sovereignly working it out for his plan and purpose. Thirdly, because God is sovereign, he cares for the big and small things in our lives. You may think, or some of us may think, if God is so big, why would he care about my small problem? Why would he care about my lack of toilet paper or tissues? Some of us think, if the problem is so big, I can't expect God to change it or bring about a miracle. But the reality is, because God is sovereign, everything is equal size to him. Nothing is bigger or smaller. Nothing is more important or less important. He sees all things in their exact place at the same time. And he cares for us in those times. If you look at Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says this. He argues from the lesser to the greater to prove that God is caring about us. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So if God cares for the small little birds, will he not care for us? The biggest thing, the, the pandemic of the coronavirus, to the fact that you have no toilet paper, God cares for us in the big and the small because he is sovereign. Fourth, because God is sovereign, he's able to care for us personally and individually. You see, God doesn't just deal with the church, corporate, the church in general, or even Sovereign Grace Church, or even your life group just as a, as a blob, but he deals with each one of us personally and individually. Every member of your family, every child, every person, your spouse, your friends, your colleagues, he deals with each one of us personally. And so we can go to God for our own personal things and he cares for us. John Carson said this, I think this is a great quote. The degree of our peace of mind is tied to our prayer. This is not because prayer is just psychologically soothing, but because we address a prayer answering God a personal God, a responding God, a sovereign God, whom we can trust with the outcomes of life's confusions. And we learn with time that, God, that if God in this instance or that instance 
does not choose to take away our suffering or utterly remove the evil. He does send grace and power to help us in our time of need. Fifth, because God is sovereign, it gives us an opportunity for humble worship amid the confusion of suffering. You see, God is far greater and bigger than we can imagine. And we can't get our heads around our present circumstances. And so it gives us an opportunity to humble ourselves before God, admit that we don't see the whole picture, admit we don't get it. And rather than shaking our fist, accusing him, we can bow down our knees and worship him and confess that he is the good one, the sovereign one, the wise one. And that's exactly what God gets Job to do in the whirlwind in chapters, you know, 40 to 42 of Job. So what does a child do when he skins his knee? What does Jasper do when he falls over? The first thing he does is he runs to my arms and want to cuddle. Does cuddling affect his knee and heal it or, you know, get rid of the pain? No, but he turns to his father instinctively because he knows I'm in control. He knows I'm a source of comfort. And that is our opportunity too, as believers, as those who trust in Christ, we get to, when we skin our knees in life, our instinctive response is to run to our sovereign God, not away from him. We ought to come to him, even with the tears and the upset and the frustration and the pain and the anxiety, the big and the small, the timescale difference, all of that, the evil, the suffering, and say, God, help me. And we actually can do that because God is for us through Jesus Christ. And if you are not yet following Jesus, you can have God for you, sovereignly working all things together so that your plan of life will come together for good. But you first must put your trust in Jesus. These promises are for those who follow Jesus alone. Yes, God cares for all the world. And he does love his people. But he only promises to work all things together for good for those who love him. So if you aren't yet a follower of Jesus, if you aren't yet trusting in Jesus, kids, I'm talking to you or any adult, put your trust in the sovereign God and experience his wonderful sovereign grace. That's point number three. As we approach the seas of suffering, we have firm biblical foundations to stand on, to keep our head above water. And our third foundation to stand on is that we have a sovereign God who cares for us. Okay, two final points, and they're going to be quick, I promise. Okay, they're, they're more like the foundational ones. These ones are sort of a little bit more like applicational, especially this one. Point number four, we have an opportunity during suffering you see when we um, suffer it's easy to narrow our focus and only see the loss the pain the discomfort but because of the previous point because of god's goodness and grace we never only incur loss we always have grace as well you see in our suffering is an opportunity you know, God turns all things together for good. And therefore, even in the worst of times, suffering is an opportunity in two ways. 
Suffering can unbolt the doors of our hearts to receive the word of God. Old Puritan pastor Richard Baxter said it like this. Suffering so unbolts the doors of the heart that the word hath easier entrance. The reality is, is that we can get so busy in life, especially when things are good, that we can forget to pray. We can forget to come to God needy. We can forget to worship him with devotion and desperation. We forget our humanity and we start to walk around a little bit like little gods. Things are going well. I make these decisions. Things go well. Oh, this is great. And then boom, suffering hits. And suddenly we have an opportunity to either harden our hearts or humble our hearts. And if we humble our hearts, suffering can open the doors of our hearts to receive God's word in a whole new way. I don't know if you've ever experienced that in a time of suffering. You start to read the Psalms and you're like, I never realized this was in here. I never have experienced such comfort before in reading the Bible. Oh, thank you, Lord, that these eternal promises are true. Suffering softens us and enables us to commune with God better if we allow it to. Suffering, number two, can shape and mold us for the better. It's the second way that suffering is an opportunity. You see, suffering comes to us as believers, not as punishment, but as discipline. Hebrews 12 talks about that that proof of our sonship and daughtership in God is the fact that he does chasten us and does discipline us. And we may never know the reason why, but we always know the purpose that God is molding us and shaping us to become more and more like Christ. Consider Romans chapter five. He talk, after he talks about being saved and justified, he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given us. And so if we're humble, God can get a lot done through our suffering to strengthen our faith, to root out sin, to wean us off idols, and to make him our great treasure and delight. And thirdly, suffering can mold us to be more empathetic and caring towards others. You see, part of the ways in which God redeems our suffering is that he then uses us as vessels and instruments to help other people in their suffering. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us all in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. We can take the comfort we've received and as we are molded and affected by our suffering, know how to apply the balm of the gospel to people in their suffering circumstances without slapping on a verse, without just telling them to suck it up. Suffering makes us more humble toward God to receive his word. It shapes us and it makes us have an opportunity to comfort others. So the fourth foundation we stand on is that when suffering comes, when the fun approaches, so to speak, we can know, we can brace ourselves going, okay, this is an opportunity. This is not just loss. There is grace and there is an opportunity here. 
And that truth can help keep our head a little bit further, maybe just for the straw above the water in the time of suffering. Well said. <laughs> Finally, point number five. Final foundation to stand on for today. I'm obviously not saying everything there is to say about suffering. Point number five, we have ultimate victory over our suffering. Suffering is not the end game. Suffering is not the inevitable, you know, way that the whole world ends up in. There's a better story. Christianity has an answer to ultimate suffering and the suffering of all individuals. The greatest suffering that we all experience is death in a sense. We lose our life. But even in Christ, that's not our story. Let's read 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, i.e. we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The beautiful reality is, brothers and sisters, that the sting of death stung Jesus Christ. The suffering of life that we ought to deserve from our Heavenly Father was suffered by Jesus Christ. So that as we look ahead to the future, we know no matter the circumstance, no matter the suffering now, our future is bright. Our tomorrow will be better because only victory awaits us. Only glory awaits us. No suffering awaits those who are in Christ Jesus. No suffering. It's been defeated. It's dead. And we will rise into glory and into the presence of God for all eternity, enjoying his sovereign goodness and grace. And this truth can fill our souls even in the valley of the shadow of death. We can begin to anticipate that day when God wipes every tear from our eye and makes everything new. Often the hope of heaven isn't much comfort because we're so far from God in our personal walks. We're so far from enjoying and worshiping him that the thought of being just with him forever doesn't necessarily fill our hearts with joy. Don Carson says it like this. The more that a Christian lives in the consciousness of God's presence here, the easier it is to anticipate the unqualified delight that will be experienced in God's presence there. So brothers and sisters, prepare yourself for suffering by being in the presence of God now, so that when the goodness and the light of this world is taken from you, you start to taste more and more and long more and more for that light which is to come, for that day which is to come, for that presence which is to come, and it will feel more real to you. 
It will feel more sweet to you. It will be more of an anticipation to you the more you experience him now. So, brothers, sisters, James 1.12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Our fifth and final foundation to stand on is knowing that our suffering will be defeated, that we have a glorious future ahead of us. A crown of life will be placed on our heads and it can never be taken away through Jesus Christ our Lord. As we approach the seas of suffering, we have, we really do, have firm biblical foundations to stand on and to keep our head above water. It doesn't mean we're not going to dip our head under at times. It doesn't mean we're not going to choke and splutter. It doesn't mean we're going to feel like we're drowning. But if we take our preventative medicine, if we take, you know, these truths and get them as stepping stones for us, when the suffering hits us, part of the blow can be lessened. Part of the fear can be taken away. And we can prepare and gird ourselves for the blow. As the fin approaches, And as we see it and we wait in dread, waiting for that suffering to come, we can wait in the offensive position because we have these truths and we have this God and we have a certain hope. So, brothers and sisters, we need to understand the origin of our suffering, which is our sin. We brought it upon ourselves. We're all a part of the death of this world. Therefore, we need to accept the reality of suffering. It will come. No one will be untouched. Everyone we love, everyone we cherish, even our own selves, it will happen. So then we need to know that we have a sovereign God to turn to amidst our suffering. One who is truly in control, can do something about it, and personally loves us. And we have an opportunity during suffering. We can open our hearts to receive more of God. He can shape us and mold us and get rid of sin and then help us to help others. And finally, we can know we can have that bright tomorrow in our head that we have ultimate victory over our suffering. Let me pray. Almighty God, I thank you so much that we can pray to you that we aren't alone, that suffering is not just something that we have to walk out in darkness and in gloom, but we have you, the light of life. I pray and ask that these words would communicate grace to my own soul. I need these truths. And to the souls of my brothers and sisters and those watching, that you will help us to believe them, to take the medicine, to live in light of the way that you've made the world and the way that we have to live in the world. And so be wise. Teach us, O Lord, to number our days. And we lift our eyes to the hills, knowing that our help comes from you, not vaccines, not economic stimulus packages, not from hand washing, but our help comes from you. You are the maker of heaven and earth. You will keep us by night and by day and all of our goings coming forth. And so, Lord, we trust you as your little sheep, as your little children. In Jesus' name.
Amen.